0: Hi everyone, I'm Josh and this is The Emerald Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens. The podcast where we explore an ever changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald All that's happening on this green jewel in space. I had heard of him, of course. Everyone has at least heard the name. Something about a journey to the underworld to find a lost bride. A failed agreement not to look back. And once you've heard the name, if you start looking for him, you'll find him everywhere. He's stirred the imagination of poets and writers and artists for thirty centuries. Unlike some of his contemporaries who faded back into the groves of trees where they were born, he's had a remarkable staying power. Where you least expect him, there he is. Rilke wrung his pale heart out to him. He finds his way into Shakespeare and Nietzsche, into the librettos of Stravinsky and Liszt. He's the subject of ballets and sonnets and even avant-garde films. I'm speaking, of course, of Orpheus. But like many figures of ancient history or myth, he was, for me, always a little two-dimensional. I couldn't yet hear him breathing beneath the stars, couldn't yet hear the sound of him tuning his lyre in the forest groves preparing to sing, couldn't see those open eyes gazing skyward to receive the song that was about to leap forth, a song so powerful it would set the stones skipping. Until I read Anne Rowe's remarkable book, Orpheus, the Song of Life. If you are a lover of word and poetry and song and nature, you have to read this book on Orpheus. Never, in my experience, has a figure from the old stories and tales been given such new, vibrant, breathing life than in this book. Anne struggled to bring Orpheus to life, she told me, until ultimately she discovered he is life, the song of life, not just another hero to be sidelined to a dusty shelf. Orpheus is that living, breathing, animate hum that we hear when we walk deep into the forest. He is the song of the lyre, its power to conjure, invoke, and move and what that has always meant for human beings. Access. Access to a deeper realm, a deeper vision of the world. He is, as Rilke would come to discover, not just an inspiration for poets, but the force of poetry itself. Not only does Orpheus have his feet rooted deeply in the Neolithic, shamanic traditions of the Mediterranean, he brings an entire cosmology with him, a cosmology utterly steeped in music, Every string of his lyre was a divine force come to life. The harmonies and spaces that existed between notes were reflective of the larger harmonic forces of nature and planet and universe. He brought a unified vision of the cosmos, a vision in which song occupied the very center. And perhaps he is singing right now. Today on the podcast, Orpheus, the Song of Life, a conversation with Anne Rowe. the author of eight books, including Orpheus, The Song of Life, which won the Criticos Prize, Six Facets of Light, All About Light, and most recently, *Francis: A Life in Songs, a series of poems on St. Francis of Assisi. She writes obituaries for The Economist and lives in Brighton and London. She also, as we'll soon find out, once heard the stars in the sky singing when she was fourteen years old we started our conversation with this sense of Orpheus as the song of life, the life force itself. That sense of him as the life force and how important that was to human beings for such a very long time, to me speaks of why he might continue to resurface, like, perhaps like an old song that we've forgotten that just keeps coming back and
1: I think so. I think that's a fundamental reason why he keeps resurfacing now as he does. You know, you, you still get many modern interpretations of him. And you only have to look at Jean Cocteau's film. Um, and there have been several plays since that about him. I think, you know, whenever we get that feeling of instinctive response to nature, and that instinctive feeling, that feeling that we are all one and all connected, which I think people are far more aware of now. There's this sense of a, a cycle of life binding all of us. And in that understanding, in that feeling, I'm sure Orpheus is active. You know, that's the feeling that we're tuning into.
0: That we're conjuring him almost when we feel that connection to we nature. We conjure
1: him up, yes. He becomes real because we imagine him. And there is a passage in my book. Um, where some of the Roman authors are getting very sniffy about Orpheus and saying, well, I don't know what he looked like, and he never existed. It's just fairy stories. And um, I forget who it is. I think it might be Cicero who says, well, you know, I'm sure he didn't exist, but why do I have such a vivid image of him? And it's because you imagine him, and then he becomes real as you can imagine a unicorn, and the unicorn becomes real. Anything you imagine is as real as something that exists. It exists in another stage of being, another type of being, if you like, in the imagination.
0: Absolutely. That reminds me of um, a quote from Joseph Campbell, in which he said that a myth is something that never was, but always is.
1: Oh, that's yes. That's very nice. That is lovely, I think. And of course, we have the feeling too, I think, that any poetry that comes through or any inspiration that we get also may come from a figure. You know, we talk often of the muse, don't we? The muse visiting us or failing to visit us, as if there is a sort of a physical presence of inspiration like a human figure. And, and certainly for many poets, that that figure has been Orpheus. Uh, He's simply the, the singer who comes and evokes poetry and visits them. I mean, as recently as Rilke in the early 20th century, which is an extraordinary visitation, where he actually is visited by the figure of Orpheus. And he ends up saying, you know, it's Orpheus where there's poetry. Poetry is Orpheus. And there's only been one great poet throughout the ages, and that is Orpheus by which he means, you know, it is that source of inspiration that comes through to us. That's the one great poet who walks the earth from which we all take our inspiration. Orpheus. Yes, I mean, this is interesting because this has many derivations. Um, some people say it means the older tree, which is a tree fairly common in Thrace. Others say it comes from Euphonos, the Greek for beautiful voice. I think by far the most interesting derivation, and almost certainly the right one, is from Orphe, which is darkness. And uh, this at the beginning rather worried me because I always thought of Orpheus as a figure of light. In a way, he's the child of darkness. He comes out of darkness. He returns there. But he is light himself. He's born of the dark, and you cannot have light unless it manifests against the dark. Of course, one of his parentages is as the son of Apollo and the muse Calliope, Apollo being the god of light beyond all others. So Orpheus must be a representative of light, but it's wonderful how he is constantly seeking the dark, how the dark is his time. And when he has his own ceremonies, when he's kind of put away the cult of Dionysus and is putting forward a much more sober cult, he has these cults at nighttime still. And there his devotees sort of wear white against the darkness but there's a sense in which he's always taking the dark as his time. The dark is the most fruitful time when everything is potential and everything can come to be.
0: Yeah. And the musician always is plumbing those depths too. Like it seems fitting that 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 type of name would be associated with the musician. It's interesting. I don't, you know, we don't have to go too far into comparative mythology but in in the in the Indian tradition Krishna who's also the divine musician the word Mm. the word Krishna means the dark one
1: yes it does and of course he is always depicted as the dark one too isn't he his face is always blue this is fascinating yes exactly it's wonderful how these these mythologies cross over and of course there is some some thinking among academics that maybe Orpheus was originally a figure from Indian mythology, very, very ancient, That as a vegetation god, that is where he springs from and comes through the Fertile Crescent and from there into Greece via Crete, um, via Egypt as well. I mean, there's this extraordinary accumulation of influences in the figure of Orpheus, but that most fundamental that sort of vegetation force of growth and force of life is evidently something that's connected with him from the very beginning. So the Orpheus who charms the trees is absolutely in the oldest tradition of what he is. He's the life force within them. And I kept thinking of a phrase of Dylan Thomas, that phrase, the force that through the green fuse drives the flower, and thinking that is absolutely what Orpheus is. He's that force.
0: You talk in the book about the the roots of Orpheus in Thracian shamanism. And when you say Thrace and Thracian, I assume you're speaking of a region that's like Bulgaria near the Macedonian yes. border.
1: Yes, exactly. This is very north of Greece um, and Bulgaria, really. It's modern Bulgaria. In fact, there are quite a few scenes in the book uh, that are set in Bulgaria. Because when I went there, I found it was interesting. I mean, the whole place was still rather rickety and rackety after the end of, of the Soviet era. But there was a very strong sense coming through that Bulgarian identity had somehow to be uh, reinforced. And one way to do it was through Orpheus. There were statues of him absolutely everywhere. But yes, when I took a Thracian shamanism, it's up in that region. And these were wandering hermits or wandering preachers, in a way. Um, Half men and half demons was how they were seen. They were wandering in the forests. And they had all kinds of powers that were rather like powers of the life force. I mean, they could dive into the sea. They could dive into the earth. They could sort of work between the atoms and molecules of things, which is one of the things I, I loved about the sense of Orpheus's own power in song was the way it moved through the molecules and atoms of things moved them into different configurations and different sorts of of life Um, and this was something that comes directly from the the shaman tradition in Thrace. and when I was there uh, it was rather lovely wandering about in the forest and seeing how many wild fruits there were that sort of fell on the ground and what sort of food he could have foraged if he was walking there. Very evocative, those forests.
0: Here's how Rho describes Orpheus's homeland and the shamanic traditions of that region. Quote, the Pyrene and Rodopi's ranges, which bordered the immense steppe, were crusted half the year with snow. Fir's pines and hornbeam covered the northern slopes of the mountains, pines and oak the southern. Six varieties of oak grew in the forest. The broad-leaved Caerces pubescens, with leaves easily twisted into garlands, became Orpheus's sacred tree. Thyme perfumed the bearer places. At times clouds lay below the pine-clad peaks, misting off them in bright white plumes as though they were on fire. Hermits and wanderers also lived in the forest, walkers on smoke, who kept to a diet of cheese, milk, honey, and narcotic plants, and who knew healing charms. They sang as they wandered the stone-strewn paths, Thracian shamans were famous before Orpheus, linking the worlds of the living and the dead, and surviving beyond the grave as anthropodemones, man-daemons. They observed the stars, knew their names and courses, and could predict their effect on men. When gods possessed them, they could fly through the clouds and dive under the sea. They could charm wild beasts and birds whose language they knew and from time to time they went down to the underworld to summon out souls, or so it was believed. And they still have, in certain regions of Bulgaria, these old animistic festivals where they dress up in these woodland costumes, and it seems like a region that even still may be influenced by this type of animism, despite the Soviet presence for so many years.
1: Yes, I think so, I and mean, I think the fabric of old religious belief always remains, and, and actually there's a sort of animism that's even with us, you know, in the so-called highly rationalized, you know, and rational West, I I think we've only got to find ourselves in depths of nature. And we begin to see spirits in trees, and spirits in rocks, and so on, it doesn't take much, you know, the veneer of sophistication and civilization, and rationalism pretty soon fades away if you find yourself lost in a wood at night or, you know, on a mountainside in strange weather. I I think it's fascinating the way it does disappear. And therefore I think, you know, sometimes we just dismiss animism and we dismiss animists as perhaps, you know, believers in religion in Africa now and not in other places. And this this is simply not true. I think it's a, a fundamental tendency of human beings
0: yeah and this is something that's right at the heart of the the podcast I'm doing, especially you know in relation to myth, because you know our primary way of interacting with myth these days is written words on a page, and that that's so fundamentally different to the sung origins of myth in in which myth really is and was um this living force and this living force this anima that was present in how people interacted with nature and reinforced our relationships with nature. Um, So it's really like the heart of of what I want to talk about today.
1: I do agree with that completely. I think the fact that so much of the literature of the ancient world was chanted or sung and was not, certainly not read silently and not even read as prose or verse, it was sung or chanted. You know, the sense that your life is almost lived in terms of song and your state and your society is built up with music and, and that's how music got such a an importance with the ancient Greeks you know that their philosophers really wondered whether you know whether if you broke the laws of music you ought to be banned from the state you know it, it is incredibly important to keep the structure of the making of music, because all kind of emotion and morality and social harmony comes from that fundamental sound. I, I think it's extraordinary to it's extraordinary to think like that, and yet I also find that very persuasive and very attractive.
0: The interactions between Orpheus and the natural world there's there's so many, um, but maybe you mm. can give us some examples of this animism that, that plays out in Orpheus. You you speak in the book of of nature teaching him, and of nymphs visible and invisible, and the birds that flock to his lyre. Can you talk a little bit about his interactions with nature?
1: Well, I simply imagine that he interacted with it all the time. And those, those pieces you quote came from my imagination of his childhood, because I, I used as much as I could of the hymns that he's supposed to have written and the rhapsodies on creation that he was also supposed to have written, where he describes the nymphs and he describes the rivers and that sort of thing. And and the sort of adjectives that he uses of these phenomena, I imagine he was experiencing and feeling. And suddenly something that struck me is that everything moves all the time. There's a very strong life current going through everything, through the trees, through the streams, you know, he's he doesn't use gentle adjectives orpheus. He uses very strong ones. He is really obsessed, if you like, with the surging of rivers, with the power of them, with the life in them everywhere. And there's a wonderful sense in which he looks at his own body and he sees it as a net that in a way encloses his soul and he gets into the flow of a river and within the flow of that river he sort of flows out into it through the net of his body which is an extraordinary image i absolutely love it and it's a sense in which his essential life his soul as he sees it you know flows out into the life that is in all other life
0: Here are some of Rowe's vivid invocations of Orpheus and his relationship with nature. He could also make the water stop. Quiet, long notes and even the wide Hebris would begin to flatten, to sink like a concave glass and then retreat, sucked back into its dry, whitish bed with a silvery flick, like a fish. Then he could bring it out again, beckoning and flickering his fingers on the strings. His own music seemed to be the water's sound and light, flashing in starbursts underneath the trees. Beside mountain streams he played its peeling, dripping, funneling flow, and the spark note of bubbles bursting. He plucked its underwater gulp among shadowed stones, and the bright plaited threads that twined as it fell. He played its foaming surge through slipping, moss-slick rocks, he and nature together. You whirl the world, he sang to nature later, circling in all your ever-changing flow. Rushing and swirling to each stream below, And nothing slows the force with which you go. In pools still as mirrors he observed his own body, Spun like a veil or a net on the marble loom of his bones, The blue veins branching, His hair raying in a vortex from the crown of his head, His navel a deep shell. All this seemed fluid to him rather than flesh, Jumping off into the water, kicking his feet, swimming, He became a naked helix of gleaming, winding waves. All his teachings, some said later, could be summed up in a single word. Reo, I flow away.
1: such a powerful image which he then of course you know applies also to to stones to trees and he is always letting his music move within as i said the atoms and the molecules of other material things and listening for the music in them and then sort of rearranging so that you know stones will will skip and there's a famous scene which I remember you said you liked where he draws the oak trees down. There's oak trees growing on the mountain and he persuades them to come down to the sea just by playing his his lyre and he, he goes in front and they all can pull up their roots and strain and stretch and his m- music moves to make their old hard limbs become supple again so that they can make the journey. And then he gets them as far as the shore, and they form a circle as if they're going to dance. But then he can't, he can't make them go any further. You know, he wants, in a way, to draw them right into the water. But he has to leave them there because he can't make them go necessarily all the way he means them
2: to go.
0: Here's how it happened when Orpheus moved the trees. As he strode and sang one day on the Pimpleian Heights... He sensed a rustling and creeping at his back. Shadows fell unexpectedly, and a chaos of startled birds beat around him. His holy oaks, the most immovable of trees, anchored almost to Hades, were following him. One by one they dragged up their roots, heaving the stony soil, throwing off the dirt. The stones followed too, skittering, singing. Their broad trunks quivered and grew limber like the bodies of stags music his music coursed through their branches like new sap making the toothed leaves shake and shine under the sun it flowed swift as spirit through the cells to their green core along twisted sinews and down polished defiles of the wrenched-out dancing wood. From root to bud his music shivered and surged in them like release. Their mastheads moved together, pressing forward, leaving behind only the dead with their mossy arms stretched out, wildly tangled in garlands and cloaks of green ivy like half-dressed mourners abandoned in the street. The living, newly alive, crashed on. He led them then, scarcely daring to turn in case they froze behind him, swaying and stumbling from rock to rock, their canopies full of sky and threshing wings, until they reached Zone on the Aegean Sea. There, in an open space, they arranged themselves in a double ring as though they meant to dance in a spiral, like the planets around the sun. But though he urged them to dance, though he challenged them, laughing and splashing, to follow him into the sea with their hundred hydra arms, they moved no more. Having staggered so far, astonished by the wide blue glare ahead of them, they felt the music leave them, and rooted there. He could lead them only so far. That is still the case.
1: There's always something I like about Orpheus is always there's always a faint sense of limitation with him. There's a sense that he's only a semigod you know he's not a he's not a god, he's not a demigod even and it's quite important to remember that you know when he's singing, as I imagine him singing. He can't go on singing indefinitely. He's going to have to stop and have a drink of water. You know? <laughs> he's, uh,
2: he's,
1: he's got the kind of divine inspiration a great deal of the time. And there's a, there's a wonderful Rilke phrase, you know, where he suddenly asks Orpheus, when are you going to breathe the stars into us? You know, when you can do this. It's easy for a god, but of course, obviously, isn't the god, and he is going to have to just say, I, "I can't do that today."
0: What you're saying is very interesting because, in a way, like you say, that that limitation does allow him to be a vision for us of perhaps the inspired human being and what's possible through sound and music and when we're connected to nature and to the life force.
1: Yes, exactly. It's the sense of what is potential there, what we can hear and what is there to be heard if we really still ourselves, if we really commune with nature, what we can manage to hear. And I think we've all had this experience. I remember once when I was 14 and just on a swing in the nighttime and I heard the sound of the stars, you know, I heard it was so silent with only the sound of the stars circling, uh, it, it was absolutely extraordinary, but it was there to be heard. You know, I think we all have moments like that where suddenly we, we hear what's going on. We hear the note that the, you know, the sea is singing in or the earth is singing in or the trees are singing in. We, we, we somehow manage to connect in that way. And it's there to be heard. But we have to really still ourselves. We do have to listen. And a lot of his childhood, all of his childhood that I imagine, was an exercise in listening as much as anything.
0: It also reminds me of simply the word music and the word muse, which are related to the sense of movement and to move.
1: Yes. That is fascinating, isn't it? I agree. I mean, uh, this sense that, for example, all the planets have their own particular hum, which they make as they you know, as they pass in their orbits, so that we have a network of music in the stars. There are all kinds of ideas of the music of water. You know, you can certainly hear different notes in water as it flows from one place to another. And I mean, music simply surrounds us all the time, and the music that's caused by by movement in fact it can't exist if there isn't movement there is a, a w- wonderful motto i think or kind of catchphrase of orpheus is it is not lawful to stand still and i love that the sense you must move you know this is what life is life is movement once you stand still it stops or it goes back to chaos you must keep it going you must keep the music going
0: I want to dive a little bit more into the the trees and the stones. Animate trees are obviously everywhere in the stories of Orpheus. And then you, you mention even that the the thirteen consonants of the Pelasgian elf al- alphabet are based on thirteen trees.
1: Yes, that's right. I mean that is fascinating because then you know words and music and literature come out of trees in a way. Um, and there are 13 interesting trees, I think. Um, quite a few of them are special to Orpheus, and I guess all of them had a particular meaning for him. But you have the alder there again, like his name. You have the willow, which is a very important tree in his ideas. You know, it's one that particularly makes song because its leaves are constantly in motion. And uh, then you have the hazel, which is a particular tree that is grown over holy pools. And you have the ivy and the vine that are sacred to Dionysus because Orpheus is initially a priest of Dionysus. And yes, I, I mean the subject of trees as people and sentient trees is everywhere in Orpheus. And certainly in Ovid's telling, you have all these gods and goddesses and nymphs and so on turned into trees. You can see the same impulse to tell that story of life going into a tree and being imprisoned, coming out of trees. The sense of trees as almost human figures
0: Let's pause here and steep a bit in the ancient understandings of trees, a vision which is not only medicinal but energetic and aesthetic. The willow was important to Orpheus because of its movement, its rustling, its sound, its susurrus or whisper. Beyond scientific functions of various trees, there is an artistry to certain trees that made them important. Look at the shape of the oak leaf. To a bard that valued the lilt of song and the frequencies of sound, the oak leaf is a shape of obvious power the kadamba tree sacred in india within the traditions that illuminate teachings on vibration has a fruit with bold bristles the jagged fronds of the date palm secure its place in the embroidered patterns of clothes across western india trees and song and sacred shape share a very close relationship i remember being fifteen and looking out across the vast pine forests in british columbia You didn't have to tell me that those boisterous pines were singing. I felt it, singing in praise to the great peak above. I hadn't yet heard what Beethoven said about the trees. In the country, it was as if every tree proclaimed, Holy, holy. Who can express the ecstasy of the woods? So this vision of trees as the source of music extends across cultures, a vision that might be as intricate as complex mythologies of singing animate beings within the trees bestowing holy alphabets, or as simple as this, most human instruments are made of wood, so trees literally are the source of music. Simple. You know, it's again, to me, it it points to a worldview that I think that, you know, it's hard to penetrate again, if we're just reading the words on a page, because I, I think like scholars tend to look at mentions of plants in the myths, and they just maybe gloss over them a little bit like, oh, that's a nice little poetic flourish to mention that ivy plant or that laurel or that alder not really realizing what plants were to the ancient mind.
1: Yes, they all have an absolute symbolism to the ancient mind. And I think one of the interesting parts that arises from the story that Orpheus went with the Argonauts to get the Golden Fleece, um, which is another twist to the story, is that when he gets to the land of the Golden Fleece, he goes there almost as a botanist, he goes there looking for plants and, uh, you know, his purpose in being there is actually to subdue the dragon that guards the Golden Fleece by lulling it asleep with this potion of plants and blood and barley meal and all sorts of other rather messier stuff, but the fundamental parts of it are plants that he's particularly looking for. And so he appears in the tale of the Argonauts as almost a botanist as much as anything.
0: It's such a fascinating interplay between song and the plant kingdom that, you know, the trees inspire the alphabet in a certain way. The alphabet then comes from the trees, the songs come from the trees, and then the songs allow the forces of the trees to be moved and interacted with.
1: Yes, No, that's right. There is a cycle going on there. You know, there's this endless circle, which again, you know, is talked about a lot in the Orphic works. You know, everything comes into being and then dies. It goes back again. You're constantly taking from creation, giving it back to creation. You're being acted upon by nature, but then you give back to nature. And this absolutely endless cycle that goes on. Hmm.
0: Let's move to the stones. (laughs) I I know that uh, there is a work that's attributed to Orpheus called the Lithica, which is about stones, Mm. correct?
1: That is right. There's a good many works attributed to him. I I don't know whether he wrote half of them, and not many of them survive, actually, very few. Um, The Lithica does survive, Um, and that's... uh, that that does mention the properties of particular stones once they had been sung to, in a way, once they'd been awakened. So that agate makes the wheat ears fill out, and uh, jasper makes the grass grow, and there's hematite that binds up wounds.
0: Here's what Rowe says about the powers of stone. Quote, in Orpheus's lithica, inert, mute, precious stones, empowered by the gods or by a poet's songs, could bring showers or fair weather. Polished green jasper pushed up the spring grass, agate filled the weed ears, a drop of blood-red hematite dust instilled on a feather could clear a man's eyes, and one stone made a sound like a baby at its mother's breast mewing for milk. Only when objects were perceived as objects, Coleridge remarked once, Were they fixed and dead? The poet saw them as living souls and thus brought them alive. The harmonics of nature, this relationship of stone and tree and water, are reflected in the Orphic vision of creation. Anne read this passage from her book describing the Orphic creation hymn.
1: Orpheus taught that the first cause was undecaying time, boldly giving it a name when most theologists didn't dare. Some might object, of course, that the first cause surely lay outside time, but Orpheus would reply that time took the lead in all generation, one thing following another, and so naturally it came first. Time then coupled with Ananke, or compulsion, both twining like snakes in utter emptiness, though as yet there were no forms. From these sprang ether and chaos, the one binding and limiting, the other an infinite and bottomless chasm. And from the marriage of these came being as a great cosmic egg, silver-shining like mother-of-pearl. This egg began to move steadily in a great circle. Then out of it burst Farnes, the manifester and the first of the gods, ripping through ether as he came, in unexpected light. With a roar of harmony, music came with him. He was both male and female, golden-winged and gloriously beautiful. His name in Greek derived from Phanean, blazing torches, shining stars. Night came with him, sometimes as his sister, sometimes his daughter. She alone could see him, though his radiance filled all creation. He either mated with himself or with her, and together they produced all phenomena, heaven and earth and ocean, gods and the men they made. But the first of their productions was love. So that's your Orphic creation myth.
0: (laughs) Well, we could talk about that for another decade.
1: (laughs) I think so. I mean, that was as simple as I could make it in the book.
0: It's an intricate vision, but it also has stunning parallels. Indian traditions, too, speak of creation as generated by a great cosmic egg, Hiranyagarbha, the golden embryo, a vision concurrent with the singularity of the Big Bang. The Orphic egg, sometimes shown as an egg with a serpent coiled around it, is uncannily similar to the image of the Shiva stone seen all over the Indian subcontinent, and it, too, features a featureless egg surrounded by a coiled serpent. And this vision of impulse echoing throughout undecaying time as the source of all creation is a very musical vision, with strong parallels to the later tantric traditions in India, in which Shiva is the container for all activity, undecaying time, and Shakti is all the activity within that container, impulse, and ultimately the two are one, one note echoing into eternity.
1: I mean, this fascinates me. This seems to me to suggest that all myths ultimately go back to one simple myth. If we could find what it was, you know, and I think I tend to favor Indian myths. You know, I do think it's probably the basis of an awful lot that developed out of it. And it's a parallel to my mind with the idea that all mysticism leads you to one place and one Version of God, which is actually what God is, what the infinite is. All mysticisms tend in that direction, and all myths tend in the direction of exactly how we began.
0: Well, this vision of the cosmos as music and the intervals of music as the cosmos, I want to start talking about this a little bit for our remaining time. Um, so first let's talk about the, the instrument of Orpheus, the, the lyre, you speak of it containing all songs and poetry and, you know, this and the, the, the Greek vision of the muses kind of suggests that poems and songs are these forces that exist outside of human beings. And then the, the inspired human being is a receptor rather than a creator in a way.
1: Yes. Many poets feel that they are not the conscious creators of what they find they've written down, that you can often write something and you're not even quite sure where it came from. This is what poets and writers often hope for, poets particularly, and I think musicians too. I think it's less true of prose writers who have actually got a narrative that they're carrying out. But if you are waiting for inspiration or that kind of arrangement of words or notes that will work. I mean, you are often sitting almost consciously waiting for something to come into you. You can't make it yourself. You can work on it once something's come through, but you somehow can't initiate that. Something's got to start it going. And I think we've all had the experience that somehow we've had a thought or written something down and we think, where on earth did that come from? Uh, I think this is something that Keats, for example, the poet Keats felt quite strongly. And he has a a very good um, little phrase, which I have on a postcard, which says, you know, if poetry doesn't come as naturally as the leaves on a tree, it had better not come at all. And I think that fits in so nicely with our theme of, you know, of of the trees and the words. Um, He is well aware that... That's how poetry comes through, utterly naturally, as naturally as leaves. And it's interesting that he has he asked for a lyre on his tombstone, so he is consciously thinking of being the receptor of of this sound. And there's a lovely idea to me that sound can move through inanimate objects and make them into sounding lyres. I've actually heard this work on metal tube gates that you get in fields you can sometimes be walking across a field and you you can hear uh, odd music coming from somewhere wonderful music actually and you realize it's the wind playing through the various apertures and odd bits of rust and things in a metal fence so i love the way that music will keep coming through and and will make a liar out of a lot of things it's probably making a liar out of us you know I mean, there's the famous phrase of Shelley, Make me thy lyre. You know, it's what he asks of the West Wind.
0: Here's what Shelley said. Make me thy lyre, as the forest is. Drive my dead thoughts over the universe like withered leaves to quicken a new birth. And by the incantation of this verse... Scatter, as from an unextinguished hearth, Ashes and sparks, my words among mankind. Back to the lyre, the instrument of Orpheus, which of course is not just an instrument, but is a reflection of the energetics of creation itself, complete with its seven strings, each of which has a name. Quote, His lyre has seven strings, you may see them as the seven spheres through which he will lead souls to heaven, the seven stars of his Roman portraits, or as Christian doctrines, virtues, sacraments. They can be the rainbow's seven colors splitting out of white light as silence produces the seven notes of the scale. As he holds the lyre clasped to his left side and tilted away from him, the deepest sound belongs to the string that lies closest to his body. He calls it Hippate.
1: The deepest know is Hippate. Which means winter and buried life. So you gradually work out of that towards the brightest of the notes, which is netto, which is summer and the sound of crickets, you know, and that kind of bright, shrilling sound. And then immediately adjacent within them, you've got kind of gentler notes of the seasons of autumn, seasons of spring. And then the middle note, meze, is, is meant to be the note of love. And that's the note everything revolves around. So then you're going back to the creation myth, in a sense. The first you know, offspring of fanes and night is love. So you have light and dark in the lyre as a creation where you have light and dark coupling with each other, and then you have love in the center of the lyre. The central string, fundamentally, you have in the lyre, almost like a miniature maquette of creation, if you like. And so Orpheus is bringing the whole of creation within the scope of the lyre, and his lyre is a symbol of creation also.
0: Well, and it's interesting, the first string being named winter which is darkness which kind of relates to our earlier discussion about like the light coming out of the birthing place of the darkness in a way
1: absolutely it absolutely um, makes sense along with that you know the light comes out of the darkness and gradually climbs to brightness and then it resolves back to the dark you know it will eventually go back to that tone as you go up the scale then you must go down the scale
0: So you have this vision of the harmonics of music relating to the harmonics of the planets relating to light and the seasons. It's a very holistic vision of the universe, the music of the spheres.
1: It is absolutely holistic, yes. Everything is contained in there you know, the gods are contained in there as well, because each planet was dedicated to a particular god. And then you have the modes of music in Greece. And, uh, you know, the Doric mode, which is supposed to have been um, Orpheus's mode, was the mode of the sun. So that's the mode of Apollo. And each, each Mode has its governing God, its its governing star, governing wandering star. And everything musically ties together. And that is why, you know, even, even our bodies feel the same circuits that move the stars are also present within the body.
2: Mm.
1: And there's a wonderful line in Plato talking about tuning the soul circuits in us. You know, this is what we do when we really still ourselves in contemplation or prayer. You know, we're tuning the soul circuits and making ourselves completely in harmony with the harmony of the cosmos.
0: Well, so that ultimately then our experience in a body in relationship with nature and with the cosmos is a musical relationship.
1: Yes, it is. Yes, absolutely. You know, the whole purpose of music is to link us with the cosmos. I think you know the ratios of the cosmos, the ratios of our bodies, and their circuits are all connected with each other. They all mirror each other, and that—that that is that is the teaching. And it's it's such a simple and enchanting teaching. You know, you you want it to be true, and in a way, I I haven't read a terrific amount about how much scientists have been finding out about, you know, how much sound the planets make and so on, because they are still looking into this. And some scientists are very sniffy about the whole idea of the harmony of the spheres. And other people feel that intrinsically they want to believe it because it is such a beautiful theory. And it seems there is such a harmony in nature in many ways and such a purpose in nature you know, there, there seems every reason that it might exist. And I think certainly something like modern string theory, you know, which goes um, very much into vibration as the fabric of the universe, it is getting very close to thinking that music is at the core of everything. <laughs>
0: Music, at the core of everything, is a trope that can be found across cultures and millennia, and every culture, every single one, sings. This vision of sacred song was refined in India to a high, high degree, with intricate teachings on sound as the heart of the cosmos, and the role of sound in the experience of the mystic. As far as Anne's inquiry into how far modern science has followed this trail, the answer is, further and further all the time to the point that science recognizes that the harmonic intervals in musical chords are the same intervals that exist between leaves on a plant stem, the same intervals that exist along the spectrum of light, the same intervals that define the shape of galaxies and trees. So as you can probably tell, once we crack the cosmic egg and venture into string theory and vibration, there are a lot of places we can go. And this is a conversation that could have gone on for quite a long time. One place it hadn't gone yet, as you may have noticed, is into Hades, into the classic story of Orpheus and Eurydice. Orpheus's journey to the underworld is probably the most famous story of Orpheus. This is a later story, and the poets who told it, Ovid and Virgil, were Roman, and by their time much of the animist-shamanist vision of Orpheus had been tempered, or even partially lost. I'm I'm choosing not to actually really go into the classic story of Orpheus and the the underworld. Um I think that for me focusing more on his um shamanic and animist and musical roots is really the the heart of it.
1: It is the heart of it. I mean you can trust the Greeks to get to the heart of it. I think the interesting part about the underworld is that it's the shamanistic side of him again. You know, the shamans went down to the underworld. And and so that is interesting as, it, uh, as part of the story. And also, I think the Egyptian influence on him, um, because I think of Egypt as a repository of a lot of very good ancient secret stuff. And uh, the, the sort of image of the underworld, the things he's you know, he, he seems to encounter there uh, are often the sort of images that occur in the Egyptian Book of the Dead and so on. And he did say he went to Egypt, at least, you know, his his uh, so-called little bits of biography that he puts into his works um, imply that he went to Memphis to study. There, there's bits and pieces there that might be useful But I think, you know, it's a part of the myth, Orpheus and Eurydice, which modern philosophers have had an absolute field day with, with all this business of the self and the other, and can you recover what's past and so on, uh, which is all somehow not a part of what the Greeks were seeing in Orpheus. It's not his importance. It's very interesting, but it's not part of the importance of Orpheus, which I think is much more basic than that much more important to us as human beings, if you like.
0: Well, I think that when you get into these representational views of myth, I mean, I think it it was good that these, these folks were trying to interpret myth and this kind of thing, but what they were fundamentally missing is that for the shaman or for the bard or for someone like Orpheus, the journey into the underworld wasn't a metaphorical journey. So to take it with one step removed and and say, well, this represents this and this represents that. It's more describing an actual ecstatic meditative experience that these shamans and bars would have and not like, mm-hmm. oh, what this represents. You know what I mean?
1: Yes, absolutely. It's not a representation. It is what is within that, of awareness.
0: And that cultural framework, which happened before we kind of removed ourselves from nature and said, oh, well, this myth of nature must be about X, Y, or Z, rather than describing a direct experience.
1: Yes. It's, I, to my mind, it's wonderful that it's a direct experience. And certainly, some of the most enjoyable passages in the book, the bits I really most enjoyed writing, were where he has the direct experience of summoning up the trees or of flowing out into the river and this this sort of thing. You know, to looking at the sea and imagining what inside the sea is is like, you know, almost putting himself under the water to experience all the writhing forms that are inherent in the sea that the sea could bring forth as the cosmos could also bring them forth. I and mean, this tremendously vivid appreciation of the cosmos as a living structure, that we can, by imagination and you know in ecstatic experience as well, really get inside, really begin to comprehend. but uh, yeah, this is something it's fairly hard to uh, introduce into uh, modern minds, I think
0: <laughs> well, that's really like <laughs> the entire goal of the podcast I'm doing, so
1: <laughs> uh-huh. oh, well. That's a little bit, just to make them think about it.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been an absolutely wonderful conversation.
1: It's been great, Josh. I have thoroughly enjoyed it.
0: Good. Um, I actually just ordered your book on light, so um, you may be getting, a a, call, <laughs> <I'm>
2: getting <enough. laughs> a a call for
0: me. A call for me to talk about light, which is another one of my favorite subjects. So
1: it, they were really good questions. It was uh, really interesting conversation to have. So thank you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Talk soon. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash the emerald podcast. That's Patreon P A T R E O N dot com slash the Emerald Podcast. There are patronage levels starting for as low as six dollars per month, and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site. I hope you enjoy today's episode and until next time. May we live lives that are driven forth by imagination, vision, and wonder.